0: It's Andre, remember last summer at Pat's? I've got a 12-hour layover before I go to Chicago.
1: How about it? Welcome to 200 A Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta,
0: And I am the show.
1: This episode is uh, going to be a, a bit of a bit of a new new experiment on our part. But uh, before we get into that, Epi, you are the one who brought this particular episode to the table what what are we uh, watching what are we talking about this time
0: uh well the episode we're going to watch is way back in season one i feel like it's been a while since we've
1: it has. Held
0: into season one mm-hmm. and it is the uh seventh episode called the big rip-off this episode was recommended to us via twitter by diogo casquillo and i hope i am pronouncing that correctly if i'm not please uh go ahead and yell at our Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. He he brought it up because this is an episode where uh spoilers, Jim gets paid.
1: Mm-hmm. Question mark.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty excited about that. Um as as Jim's uh unsolicited bookkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super happy with how that works out.
1: So we've been doing the show for a while now. Uh, as of this recording, will be somewhere somewhere in the 40 episode range, uh, depending exactly on when this comes out. And it's been great. But also, I don't know about you, but I have been feeling a little bit of a grind starting to, to come together as we've been doing the episodes over the last couple months.
0: It makes sense. I mean, 40 episodes in, uh, Jim's knees are starting to go out, right? right. Like, it's It's rough on everyone.
1: Mm -hmm. so we talked about you know maybe trying to mix it up and do do some slightly different approaches to how we how we address the show and i think we still want to keep our basic format of talking about an episode because we enjoy the episodes and then talking about the narrative lessons that we draw from it because that's what we, what we like, (laughs) right. But we could probably do it in a different way. So, uh, for this episode, instead of going directly scene to scene with the really, uh, deep description of what happens kind of moment to moment, uh, I thought that it might be interesting to, uh, chunk it up a little bit and kind of talk about how the episode is structured, uh, and then talk about what really jumps out to us within each part, or uh, to get screenwriterly about it within each act of the episode.
0: Let's not let's not go into technical terms.
1: <laughs> so we'll give it a shot.
0: I'm excited about this.
1: Before we get to that, as always, uh, I like to mark the production stuff. Uh, as you said, that we're going back to season one, and this is in fact a Roy Huggins script, a uh, series co-creator along with uh, Cannell, Stephen Cannell. Um, because we haven't done a season one episode for a while, I'll just do a quick recap of that situation. So the show was essentially the brainchild of Huggins, and Cannell was kind of his protege who helped fill in a lot of the gaps of, of the concept and of the character and stuff like that. So hence they are both creators of the show and credited on every episode. But Huggins after the first season uh, left the show as a pretty much as an active part of it he moved on to other projects um he might have written one or two scripts that made it into later seasons but the bulk of his direct creative output as a scriptwriter, as a screenwriter are in this season he's the guy behind the prisoner he's the guy behind maverick His his kind of uh, brand, if you will, his approach was very much this inversion of a typical trope and then really digging into both the humor uh, and also the kind of different, I don't know, different weird angles that one can take on a genre. Yeah. The director for this one is uh, Vincent McEvity uh and this is the only rockford files that he directed but as a prolific tv director starting in the 60s his resume includes 6 episodes of the original star trek oh yeah including balance of terror which is uh, one of one of the really good ones that introduces the romulans um in the original series and 45 episodes of gunsmoke <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. A real working director. Um, and then in the 90s, Columbo's, he directed seven of those, which is almost all of them. I don't think there were, I think there are like 11 or 12.
0: Oh, and he did uh, three episodes of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, I guess for me.
1: I think there might be one of Airwolf in there somewhere. I thought of you then as well. Um, and uh, this one has a really interesting, well, it'll start right off with a super interesting sequence. yes.
0: And you are, of course, referring to the opening montage. Right?
1: <laughs> well, let's go ahead and talk about the opening montage.
0: <laughs> My notes for the opening montage are uh, goons travel. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, like as far as opening montages go, this is this is a good one. It sets us up for what's going to happen. It sets us up for a out of town episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talked about categorizing uh, uh, Rockford Files, was that one of our categories? The Rockford goes out of town.
1: I think we talked about that, but they tend to be subsumed into the other ones. Mm -hmm. Like this episode is basically a Rockford is hired slash Rockford gets in trouble episode. Yeah. And he happens to go out of town as part of it.
0: I do like the out of town ones as a break. Uh, Not because I have anything against Paradise Cove. It's just kind of fun to see him elsewhere, even if it's elsewhere in California. Mm -hmm. But also I like it when the locals don't like him?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: uh, I got excited for this. And I do think I remembered a little bit watching this montage. But uh, I will say I didn't remember a whole lot of this episode.
1: I like the, the out-of-town ones, too, also because they often mean that he's running more cons. So we get yeah. to see some good con Rockford. I feel like in the later seasons, you know, we see a distinct drop-off in how much he really does, you know, have to pull the wool over people's eyes or con his way through a situation. Yeah. Like a lot of that gets alighted off screen in later seasons because we just know that's how he works. But this season, first season, we get to see a lot of the actual nuts and bolts of what he does. This episode gives us some of that too.
0: I mean, we'll go into it a little bit, but this is a good like Rockford at work episode. Yeah. I mean, they're all tend to be him at work, but we get a lot of his tradecraft in this episode.
1: The thing from the preview montage that I really noted is that we see lots of beat up Jim.
0: Yeah. So if you want to see Jim get beat up, uh, you won't be let down. <laughs>
1: 200 A Day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our patrons at patreon.com slash 200 A Day. Patrons get to add to the 200 A Day Rockford Files files, help us pick which episodes to cover, and more. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at cons east of the Mississippi on behalf of Indie Press Revolution. Follow along on Twitter at IPRtweets. Shane Liebling, if you play games online, you should check out his free dice-rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Mike Gillis, host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, the McLaughlin group for nerds. They remain at radioversusthemartians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, found at misdirectedmark.com. Lowell Francis, with his award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Chris, Dave Y, and Dave P. And finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. Check out patreon.com slash 200 day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. But how about that opening shot? I didn't really remember the episode from the preview montage, but then once we hit that shot, I was like, oh, it's this one. Yeah. Because this beginning sequence, I definitely remembered. I didn't really remember where it went after this. Yeah. But this whole sequence was great. So, like we were saying, it's an out-of-town episode mostly out of town in california but it actually starts out of town in a french city which i assume is supposed to be paris they never it's never specified
0: yeah it feels paris
1: uh and i don't know paris to look at it from the air like this beautiful helicopter shot <laughs> panning over all these uh all this wonderful kind of riverfront architecture
0: is this filmed on location did you or did they you no they had to have there's a lot of like outdoor yeah filming cars and it
1: really seems like they had to have or at yeah. least gotten this helicopter shot on location because the other stuff is could be on a soundstage i guess but it seems pretty detailed like it seems yeah. like it's on location
0: it just feels like a very ballsy move uh <laughs> you're seven episodes in and you're like we're taking a paris vacation yes yeah. let's go
1: So this is the the kicking off of our episode and also of our first kind of act of of the story, which is where we're going to see what Jim is doing right now and then uh, how that connects to the case that he's been hired for once he returns to L.A. Uh, And then we see that, as one might expect, the person who hired him then starts acting weird and we get more of the backstory about why he got hired. This whole beginning sequence is essentially a little silent film. It has a beautiful score. Yeah. The music in this episode is really good. Yeah. I mean, the scores are always good, but this one seems very synced up with the the tone of each scene in a really yeah, fun I way. Agree. But I agree. Uh, so we have Jim in Paris or wherever, uh, and a little montage of him... Snacking on croissants at a cafe as he keeps an eye on a very lovely uh, blonde woman who, as it turns out, is an early screen role of Suzanne Summers.
0: I have in my notes, uh, is this Buffy the Vampire Slayer? <laughs> <laughs> she looks very similar. I knew going into this that Suzanne Summers was going to be in this episode. I
1: was in the, in the tweet recommendation, mentioned her.
0: But did not recognize her when she stepped out of it, because I'm used to uh, a more... Mature Suzanne
1: Somers. Yeah, she's pretty young here. Yeah. This is pre Three's Company, based on a, a cursory look at the filmography. I think this is before she became... Very famous. Yeah, I wonder if she's only in this sequence because she doesn't show up again in the episode, and she doesn't have any speaking parts because this is all si- this is all just done with music, and we see them talking, but we don't hear any dialogue. I wonder if she was like too expensive for a speaking role.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah. So uh, this woman's out like she's shopping. Um, she has this car that she's driving back and forth, and Jim engineers a situation where he basically rents multiple cars and parks them super close to her car while she's in a store so she can't get in the doors. As she's trying to figure out how to deal with the situation, he arrives out of nowhere as a friendly stranger to, to save the day and manages to get one of the cars open with a coat hanger.
0: Yes, that he, he gets from across the street Yeah. At the coat hanger shop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a clothing shop with a bunch of coat hangers next to the clothes, but yeah,
0: it's worth repeating that this is all silent. Yeah. It's wonderful because they're going through the trouble of showing you what's happening and what the exchange is uh, without actually telling you at any point right like uh i just really love the way that this is like it feels like almost like an old-time
1: comedy yeah it's definitely it's definitely comedic um Like, I think the whole point of it is that it's kind of it's kind of a gag. Yeah. But also we see just from like the body language and stuff, we see um, this woman go from being polite to being invested in like what he's doing. She gets closer to him and is really like engaged with what he's doing um, as he finally is able to get into one of the cars and roll it off in neutral so she can get her car out. And then we end that sequence with the two of them. um, He's helping her with her bags of groceries because that's what she was getting to wherever, you know, her apartment is or whatever. And there's a very suggestive glance in that last (laughs) moment. We don't see whether like he goes up with her, but there's a bit of a little face body language that's like, maybe that's how that went. We don't actually know because we cut from there directly to uh to Jim on the plane returning to LA. Yes.
0: And he's not having a comfortable ride on that plane no. too. That's <laughs>
1: he is covered in sleeping children.
0: Yeah. The thing about this that's hits me in in a wonderful way is he is on assignment and clearly enjoying himself. Yes. This is probably the job you want to have if you're a PI. <laughs> you get to go to Europe. It's on someone else's dime. And then when the job is over, he's on that plane, it's crowded, there's children, it's a, it's a mess, it's just not, not a pleasant trip. And from that point on, there's nothing pleasant about this job. Hmm. I, I love that.
1: It's kind of showing a vision of the romantic version of this yeah. life and then it crashes back into the reality. Um and that's also driven home by the the dialogue that we cut into which yes. is the first dialogue of the of the episode where his client uh Miss Nancy Fraser is not happy that he has been on a trip to uh how to see Europe on 200 a day plus expenses. Yes. <laughs> And then he goes through a whole thing about all the ways that he was minimizing his expenses and yeah. living in like a bad hotel and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, where, where the toilet is like a half mile walk away. And, I, and you know, you can absolutely believe that Jim is he's he's taking bargain flights. He's staying at bargain hotels and all of that stuff and still enjoying it. Because like oh, that, yeah. that's that's the deal with Jim. Like he can enjoy that. Like it's not like he has super refined tastes where, uh, as we know. When we examine what he eats. So this uh, plays into kind of a dialogue that we have a lot today in like the gig economy and whatnot, (laughs) where if you're doing something you like or you enjoy... People don't think you should be paid for it. Right. You're still delivering the exact service. And this is Jim's argument, right? Like, you know, I gave you a professional answer. It's not the one you want it, but it's the one that...
1: That's what I think. That's what you're paying me for.
0: Yeah. And he did the job. It doesn't matter that he enjoyed himself on the job. He did the job and he did it cheaply.
1: Right. He did it responsibly.
0: Yeah. I mean, this woman is basically giving him... Are millennials killing the PI business?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, she... She hired him to find out whether Virginia Nelson, who is that uh, the blonde that we saw, whether she killed her husband. Yeah. Uh, so so the situation is that Virginia and Steve Nelson, there was a, a boat accident. We find this out over the course of this whole act, essentially. But there, there's this boat accident. She made it to shore and he didn't. There was a... life insurance claim. She ended up having to sue to get it, but she did get it. And Nancy Frazier was Steve's mistress or girlfriend, had some kind of romantic relationship. And so she hired Jim to find out whether it was murder. Jim comes back from Europe saying that, uh, based on his professional opinion, he thinks that uh, the whole thing is a ruse and that he's not dead. And so, or sorry, it's a plane crash, not a boat crash, but it was a a, a crash into the water. That's why I'm thinking of boats.
0: Oh, that's I just seen the second episode of uh, The Incredible Hulk the night Mm -hmm. before, which had a boat accident. So as you were describing it, I was... I was envisioning this and I was like, wait a minute, doesn't the Hulk show up?
1: <laughs> but yeah, so so uh, Nancy's upset at this news. She doesn't want to pay Rockford. Yeah. Because um, she says that if, if Steve was alive, he would have gotten in touch with her yeah they start sparring about this check uh she says that if he leaves a bill she'll send him the check and jim of course would rather just get it now
0: (laughs) um and then there's a phone call i think there's a moment where she tries to seduce him too it's a little weird Mm. wait seduce might be too strong of a word but she tries she tries several different ways to get him to come over to her side of thinking on this which Mm -hmm. i think makes things a little more interesting uh, later on i have in my bookkeeping notes here He's out the expenses of the European trip. Right. Whatever that is, uh, there's no way she's sending him that check. That's not happening.
1: Right. Uh, So once she goes into another room to take this phone call, he uh, notices through a partly open door that she has a half-packed suitcase sitting on the bed. And there is a significant frown. Clearly, this (laughs) is uh, setting something off for him. From here, we go to Mr. Moss at the insurance company. Jim's giving him a call. These are the insurers that paid out that $400,000. And Jim's calling them because he thinks that he can get it back for him. You know, he's calling because he has a $400,000 offer or something like that. We have a couple bits here. One is that Mr. Moss is a numbers guy. And so he's quoting all these like, like 67% of phone calls are bad news, like all this stuff.
0: I I am 100% with him. (laughs) If you're my parents calling me, that's fine. But if you're anyone else, why aren't you texting? And if Mm. you're texting, why aren't you DMing me?
1: (laughs) At this point, we've gone up to 90% of phone calls are uh, wrong numbers, uh, up from the 11% that he he says. But then before Jim can uh, give any of the actual information, he sees Nancy get in the cab and uh, follows her to the airport. This is uh so at the airport we get a good as you were saying we get to see some good Jim at Tradecraft.
0: Yeah. Well, I do want to say that like already Jim is doing this thing where he's like, okay, I'm not getting paid this way, but I have information and I know that information's worth money. I mean, it's fun to look at this in the context of like how, say, Angel deals with this sort of thing. Jim's like, okay, I know the people that... I know the bureaucracy that will pay me, so let me go and engage with that. Right. It runs really close to uh, maybe blackmailing or whatever, but that's not really what's happening. What's happening is that there's... He's finding another angle. Yeah. He's like, I have something valuable. And I need to convert it to cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the what are the ways to do that?
1: Right. So the information is that he doesn't think that Steve Nelson is dead. Yeah. She doesn't want to pay him for that. But the insurance company might. Um, emphasis on might.
0: But this airport scene is amazing.
1: It's so good. I remember the first time I saw this just being like, where is this going? Because yeah. we see him. So he goes to this uh, newsstand, buys something, goes into the men's bathroom, uh, uses the coin-operated uh, stall.
0: I will say this. Pay hey, toilets are a crime against humanity. <laughs> I have I have had several encounters with them in which I've uh, I've had slightly more urgent causes mm-hmm. than Jim has in this, and I'm just like, "Fuck you, whoever invented
1: this." <laughs> it's uh, it's clearly just part of how this airport works, but uh, I was like, "Oh, that's a little moment in time that I had not expected." Yeah. Um. So Jim has uh, bought a, a little travel bag. And he takes off his coat and tie and leaves them in this stall. Clearly that is too dressed up to look like a cabbie. Right, yes. Um, cause he goes to the airline counter. So when he got in, he saw Nancy go to a counter and then go farther into the airport. So yeah. he goes to the airline counter and claims that, that he was driving a cab and his fare left the bag in there, gives a description to this, to the woman at the counter and kind of talks her into revealing her name and destination. Because, of course, the cab company, this happens all the time, and yeah. they have a service to return things like this, but he has to know where she is so they can send her a wire.
0: Also, decades before 9-11. This is, <laughs> so it's plausible. This is definitely plausible oh, for yeah. those of you who are like, how the hell does that... Red bag, not just get blown up in the parking lot by a bomb squad.
1: Right. And I like how the the woman at the desk, she's kind of like, eh, well, I'm not really supposed to tell you this stuff. But since you're trying to help someone out, yeah. you know, it's all very positive, kind of relying on like, we're all friends here kind of approach.
0: In the beginning, I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why I didn't cue into the fact that it was going to be a con. But when he approached the desk, and I don't remember the exact exchange, but his way of, maybe you can help me. I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. This is disarming Jim. Jim uh, playing a character who has a problem with some urgency.
1: And just needs a little favor.
0: Yeah, he, he wants you to, to empathize with his situation uh, and to see that you have the power to make his day a brighter day. Oh, that's great. I love it. We kind of see it being made on the run.
1: Yes. Yeah. We see him kind of figure it out as needed. He does find out that uh, he knew her name, of course, already, but he finds out that she went to Almeria, California. And then he goes back to the pay toilet to recover his jacket. Um, the guy in there can only give him 14 cents in change for his quarter.
0: <laughs> He's got 11 cents, which in today's money is somewhere between 55 and 60 cents. So we shouldn't scoff. <laughs> <laughs> But Jim is so disappointed. This is a moment where I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying this is bad or anything like that. I really love how disappointed he is. But, like, like, does Jim think this guy's scamming him?
1: I mean, I, I think he's just, of course, just my luck. Yeah, another 11 cents. Uh, and then, of course, when he opens the door, his coat and tie are gone. You knew that was going to happen. So now he's out of coat and tie. Yes. So, uh... He knows where, where Nancy went. Then we go to Jim talking to uh, Mr. Moss at the insurance company. This is basically a big haggling scene combined mm-hmm. with revealing some of that backstory um, yeah. about exactly why Jim's suspicious and why the insurance company was investigating. But then ended up they did end up paying it out, but she had to sue them to get it. Yeah. Um, so they clearly have some level of you know suspicion about how it all went down uh but not enough evidence to say that that they can't cover it. But Jim says that he has information that the insurance company does not. Um and they start this haggling process of how much how much Jim gets advanced and what percentage of the recovery fee they will give him for proving that Steve Nelson is still alive.
0: One of the things I like about this scene is the layers of work the dialogue is doing. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, it's it's haggling, but also we're getting some exposition. We're getting some understanding of what's going on, but we're also watching these two play chicken with what Jim knows, Mm -hmm. because this guy, in the process of haggling, is trying to you know where he's just trying to get Jim to to offer it up, right? Like because the moment Jim tells him what the information is, he has all the power. He's like, well, that's not worth anything. And then that's it. And then obviously both their personalities are coming out in this too. Mm-hmm. So you've got like this well-layered, um, it's doing so much work in such a small scene.
1: And it's setting up a part of the finale as well. Cause we actually right. come back to Mr. Moss at the end of the episode. Yeah. This is laying the groundwork for their interaction then. Yes. Which is great. So Jim does get dragged out of him that, uh, in his investigation, he found that uh, Jenny is living off the interest of two hundred thousand dollars in investments, <laughs> which just happens to be exactly half of a four hundred thousand dollars payout. So that, in in, in addition to uh, Nancy acting very strange once she learned of what he had to say, convinces him that uh, Nelson's still alive. Yeah, uh, Moss basically bargains him down from an initial position of fifteen hundred upfront for expenses plus 25% of the recovery fee down to $500 in advance and 5% of any money recovered. Yes. We see Jim basically being like, well, it's this or not getting any money out of this.
0: And this is exactly his, his thing. He's like, I've got this thing. Hopefully it's worth some money. Uh, Let's find out what it's worth.
1: So here's where I think we kind of go from uh, Act 1 to Act 2 of our story. We now have kind of the groundwork established. uh, Jim's on a trail. um, And we know what the stakes are for him, right?
0: What's happening now, we've just hit a uh, a nice summation of all that has come thus far, right? Like that scene is like, here we are in the story. Everybody on board, good. We're going to go somewhere else and like literally... But also we're going into this next act.
1: Well, we go into this montage of hotel signs. So again, this is like how the first, uh, how we kicked off the episode with this silent montage. Yeah. We are now kicking off kind of act two with a silent montage where we just see Jim going from hotel to hotel. Yeah. Um, and we have one little moment of dialogue in one of them where, uh, the, the guy at the desk barely gives Rockford the time of day, confirms that he has looked at every hotel in Almeria and he should check the ones up the north. <laughs> this, this motel guy, I just wanted to call out, he's, uh, he's actually uncredited in the episode, but thanks to IMDb, he's an actor named Basil Hoffman and I vaguely recognized him. And it turns out that he is a uh he's he's not the like murderer or anything, but he's a principal in a Colombo episode that I quite like, even though it's a very weird one the one um that takes place at the like mensa analog uh, the bye bye sky high i q murder case um so this hotel guy is one of the high i q people in the, in that Colombo
0: he has a really long career uh mm-hmm. it's just going through his i m d b but he definitely has a face. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, Jim continues his motel uh, searching and then he's heading back. Uh, So, you said in the Firebird, and at first I was a little like, wait a second, didn't he fly? Because I see an establishing shot of a plane. Later, we see the license plate, and I realize it's not the Firebird, because it doesn't have his license plate. It's a rental. Oh. It just happens to be the same color and almost the same model as the Firebird.
0: I was thinking the same thing. I was like, something... Uh, but I just thought I was confused by just the the fact that she flew, and we spent all that time in the airport, right? Like, right, I yeah. Maybe I just picked that up there, but
1: yeah, you're right. And it has a little badge on the front that's not on the Firebird, mm-hmm. And it's, I forget what it is, but it's a, it's a similar make and yeah. and the same color. Maybe he just has the type. Yeah. He's rented
0: many cars this episode.
1: Right. He's heading back to Almeria and he pulls over to pick up a hitchhiker. Yeah. Uh, a model named Marilyn Polanski. So she's actually really the, like, co-star of the episode. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because we don't meet her till now, but, uh, She's played by Jill Clayburgh, who apparently is very well regarded, but I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've seen any of the movies she's been, (laughs) in. but she's great. And this, this, this role is very fun.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting role because she is not wrapped up in any of it.
1: Right. And there's a moment where I thought she was, and then it turns out she wasn't. And that was kind of nice.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. There's a lot of things about this uh, character and Rockford's interactions with her that I'm just, I was like, this is... I like the angles that these are going because they're not what I expect.
1: So, yeah, she's she's hitching back to Almeria because she had a real grope freak of a client. Mm-hmm. Apparently, her, her deal is she's $20 an hour for clothes on, 23 an hour for the real me.
0: So, new podcast?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Twenty three an hour for the real me. Yeah, I'm not sure if that'll work in audio, <laughs> but she definitely brings this very like late '60s, early '70s oh, yeah. hippie vibe, uh, which is kind of fun. I think even
0: Rockford was surprised when she said she was coming back from a job because he thought he was picking up a flower child, right? Like, like just <laughs> yeah. a uh, a hippie on the side of the road. But uh, in fact, my notes are hitchhiker, flower child, ah, yeah.
1: a model. <laughs> <laughs> he so he's been. Uh, flashing this picture of Steve around and no one's recognizing him. Same with her. She looks and says that she's never seen that guy before. Ask why he's looking for, for him and he has this great little... Kind of, it's not, I mean, it's just a, it's a joke, but he claims to be, he's like, uh, he's an advertising executive and this guy's our top animator. No one else can draw the, the avocado bandito the way that he can. <laughs> and she's like, Are, is that true? And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's all very lighthearted. Yeah. But avocado bandito. Yeah. I am down for that. Yeah. As a mascot.
0: This is uh, like, this is a great moment to show off that Rockford can just come up with these things. Like this is a feasible scenario. Like, not quite, because he wouldn't be the executive looking for this guy, probably. But it matches all of the hallmarks of one of his cons. Like, I'm a person with a job, with a stress. You might be able to help me out with it, right? She's, yeah, she's like, are you kidding? He's like, yeah, I'm kidding. And and what's great about that is that uh, that decision to be honest with a perfect stranger, Mm -hmm. like, sets the tone for their relationship for the rest of the episode. Like, Mm -hmm. at that point going forward... He's still tight-lipped about his information. He won't tell her exactly what's happening, but he won't lie to her about anything. He'll just say, "No, yeah, th- yeah I'm not going to tell you about that," or 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 what whatnot.
1: And I think it also is a tell to the audience that she's not involved. Yes, it kind of tells us like, oh, she is kind of this outsider to the uh, to the whole thing. He's not trying to con her or lie to her. Yeah. Now we're all in an even playing field about like what we all know about what's going on um, and is the beginning of them flirting, uh, which yes. culminates with uh, when he drops her off. She offers to cook him dinner, but he uh, I think he's like, oh, I know where that's going to go. <laughs> so he's like, how about I'll take you out instead? He kind of pumps the brakes a little bit. Yeah. Before they get to dinner. Uh, he clearly has been trying to find the, the sheriff in this town to ask some more questions about this guy. Cause he's been striking at, striking out at the motels and in just a little piece of like fun establishment. I think he finds him at a, there's like a, there's been a crash or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little unclear whether it's a car crash or a car like went up on a curb or something, but there's like a frenetic. Crash scene with like yeah. bystanders and a bunch of deputies and stuff, and the sheriff is there. And Rockford just walks right in, kind of ignoring all this other <laughs> stuff going on to like talk to the sheriff.
0: This is a very Western style, uh, mm-hmm. like a uh, Wild West Western, yeah, movie thing. Normally, this would show off how rough the town is, and the stranger who's wandering into the town just walks right up to the sheriff, who's just like dragging bodies out of the street. After <laughs> something like that. Like, this is a very common scene in Westerns. And I wonder if this is a thing that uh, Roy is is doing. I don't think there's, like, a big... Comment that he's making. I think he's just having fun with one
1: of those scenes. It's a fun way to set this interaction yeah. up. So the sheriff, of course, has no time for Rockford and wants him out of his town. Yeah. That's the role of local police in the Rockford Files. Yeah. <laughs> we do get a really good bit where uh we learn a little bit about why Rockford keeps his gun in the cookie jar. Oh yes. Because the, the sheriff like pats him down, which is weird, but okay, and asks him where his gun is, and he says that he, he keeps his gun in a uh in a can of instant coffee. It, ke- it absorbs the moisture keeps it dry in the uh salt, salt air yeah <laughs> you know. maybe uh not literally also in the cookie jar but yes. <laughs> you know that seems as good a reason as any uh but yeah so he asks about steve nelson and he just gets totally stonewalled the sheriff doesn't want him around yeah doesn't want him to ask any of his people anything and threatens to arrest him if he doesn't just move along for like this long list of nuisance charges right <laughs> So Jim, with no lever, he doesn't have any leverage over this guy, right? Other than just like trying to be polite. He he heads away from the situation and happens to see Nancy Fraser crossing the street. So proof positive that she did come here. Uh, He pursues her, but loses her in a park where we do see many people painting. Just like doing like landscape paintings, which reminded me of Marilyn's comment uh, in their conversation that there's just a lot of artists in this town. Yeah. Again, all this stuff ends up being relevant as we go through.
0: Artists who can afford 23 an hour. Right. Or, you know, 20 if they don't want the real her.
1: (laughs) Um, And even this interaction with the sheriff is setting up something later. Yeah. This episode everything is super tight and focused, which is really nice. We uh start getting to kind of the end of this act as uh we go to the dinner with Marilyn. Uh we don't really see much of the dinner food-wise or conversation-wise cuz most of this is actually about showing us the first real threat that mm-hmm. Rockford is facing. Or he goes into the bathroom. These two gorillas who we saw at a table watching the meat dinner follow him in. They both have real faces for the Rockford files. Yes. One of them has all the dialogue. The other one just kind of looms menacingly. And the one with all the dialogue I really thought had been in a million of these episodes. But turns out this is only Rockford Files. Huh. Warren Vanders is the actor.
0: In my notes, I'm like, is this a Caradine? This guy is a very Caradine look.
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, in the bathroom, they corner him, flash a badge, and say that the sheriff thinks he's been in town too long. He should move along tonight. The bus leaves at 11 and they give him a bus ticket. Jim has a good line of, I never ride on buses. I get carsick. Yes. <laughs> uh, but they threaten him with, it's either like carsick on a bus or six months in traction. In in a very Jim way. It's kind of like, well, when you put it that way, guess I'm taking the bus. Of course, narrator voice, he did not take the bus. <laughs> he does make a quick call to the sheriff's office once out of the bathroom which is not answered or he's not there or something doesn't get what he wants and then returns to the table with marilyn as just as she's getting um antsy that she thought he skipped out on her and stiffed her with the check
0: yeah (laughs) there's some heavy indications that he
1: did but then he does show back up and she is relieved and, uh, he asks her about the guys and she basically, you know, I don't really know about any of that, but you don't want to mess with the sheriff. He's dangerous. He keeps the crime rate down. If you know what I mean.
0: I really dig the chemistry in this scene because yeah. of the way she's acting, you know, going from thinking he might've left her with the check to her coming back and then realizing that he might be in danger and then her concern and the way she delivers these lines, it's a little bit like she's, a little bit disappointed in herself for having fallen for this guy, not because he's dangerous, but that he, because he's in trouble. Like there's just something very real about how this all goes down where she's like, ah, all right. I like you. Darn it. (laughs) And, and it's not, I like you. So I'm going to let you in on something. It's, I like you, so I'm worried about what could happen to you. So maybe you should just get out of here.
1: Yeah, even though I don't really know why you're here. Yeah. You're getting into trouble. Yeah, this is the only moment where I was like, maybe she's in on something like, right. oh, you don't want to stay around here. Sheriff's really a problem. Yeah, it could it,
0: Yeah, it could definitely
1: be read uh, that way as well. But I think we quickly see that that's not yeah. the case. Um, so he drops Marilyn off. Uh, they have a little kiss goodnight.
0: Mm-hmm. Great kiss.
1: And then, uh, this is, I really noticed here where the soundtrack really oh. amps this up because it's this <laughs> kind of romantic theme. And in the very beginning montage, there was this very romantic, you know, yeah. score kind of theme going and then i think this is the same kind of theme going through this and then there's just these ominous deep notes that just like enter into (laughs) it and then go out as it goes to different shots i was like oh something bad's gonna happen
0: this is the part where some musical instrument starts to sound like a tea kettle (laughs) there's moments of kind of disturbing dissonance in the music as well like where they're like okay now we're in danger.
1: Mm. Of course, our two gorillas have followed them and are watching him from the car. And then, before he can back out of this driveway, they uh, block him in, haul him out at gunpoint, and uh, throw him into their car. But then we get a sh- we do get a shot of Marilyn seeing this happen out of her window. Yeah, I feel like when I saw that, uh, the expression on her face.
0: Yeah, it was very genuine. Like, yeah, she she was worried about what was going to happen.
1: Right. So of course, our goons drop him off at the bus station. They beat him up. Is where he gets all of his bruises from the preview montage. It looks pretty rough. He has this like yeah cut on his cheek and a cut on his eye they uh, beat him up drop him tell him to wait for the bus uh, it'll be coming for you and then I think to emphasize how like how he's really been beaten up after they leave we get this one shot kind of from his perspective and it's all blurry
0: he's concussed
1: and then he passes out
0: okay so there's a thing in this scene here. I have no idea if this is intentional or not. But the way it's shot, after they beat him up, he's sitting on the ground. And the car is behind him. But it looks a little bit like he might be leaning on the car. Hmm. Uh, And then the car drives off. And he's so close to the tire when that happens... I know that this isn't going to happen. I know that the like he's not going to get caught in the tire and dragged down the road. <laughs> but, like, there's a visceral reaction that I had to this. And it reminded me that I had a very visceral reaction to the opening scene uh, when they brought her groceries home. And they opened the trunk, and the grocery bag with the French bread mm-hmm. sticking out of it is leaning against the spare tire. And I was thinking to myself gross yeah i'm not gonna eat french (laughs) bread that's been banging against a spare tire this whole time anyways that's my parallel tire theory (laughs) of the big
1: ripoff it's a good theory uh and so here i think and i think this goes into a commercial break too where he like passes out right and we are now transitioning into our next act three the stakes have risen again i think that's where i see the transitions right where the mystery deepens and the stakes rise yeah so we come into this act, unfortunately, no more montages, uh, but we do have Marilyn bringing him around. Mm-hmm. She followed them in his car. He says that he's been thumped by experts. Yes.
0: <laughs> Have you ever been thumped by
1: experts? But she did recognize one of them. And she seems she's a little reluctant. I think she's yeah. still kind of like, I don't really want to get dragged into this. And I, I think you should just leave it alone is kind of the tone here.
0: So it's interesting because her reluctance here and, and the vibe that we're picking up, which could also be stuff that we're bringing from... The just genre or having watched a lot of Rockford Files episodes. Uh, but I feel like it's a bit of a misdirect too, right? Mm-hmm. She definitely is reluctant and she definitely is concerned about him.
1: But as soon as he kind of pushes back, she tells him what she knows.
0: There's no real organized criminal conspiracy going on here. Right. She's like, don't mess with the mob. Don't mess with this corrupt sheriff. Don't yeah. mess with but that's that's too competent for what's actually happening here.
1: She does say that she recognizes one of them from his day job. Yeah. Before we get to that, we get the the line from the opening montage of is there anything you won't do for money? Cuz he's saying that like he has a lot of he needs to stay because he has a lot of money tied up in this, right? Like he needs to chase this down or else he's not getting paid. So is there anything you won't do for money? I won't kill for it, and I won't marry for it. Other than that, I'm open to just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We have a joke in the cut here where she says that she recognizes one of the guys from his day job, and then yeah. we cut to <laughs> our our uh, our talkie goon getting punched into a pile of uh, like auto part boxes, yeah. um, and wearing the overalls of a garage, you know, grease monkey. And so now we have Rockford gating the upper hand. Uh, this is not a professional goon. He's, uh, not part of the mob. He's not even a sheriff's deputy, which is important. He's, uh, just a guy who got paid $200 to rough Jim up and run him out of town. But he only got 100 because he had to split with the other guy.
0: I love that Jim is worth a single day's work. Uh, and I will reiterate for the audience that we're probably talking upwards of a grand in today's money. Mm-hmm. Anyways.
1: Jim offers him $200 all, all to himself to tell him who hired the two of them yeah. to beat him up. It's funny because he goes immediately from I'm not going to tell you anything to $200. Okay, fine. <laughs> So he says that Carl LeMay, who has a gallery, is the one who hired them. And Jim shows him the picture, uh, and he says it's not that guy. So this Carl LeMay is not Nelson. And then
0: Jim drags it out a little bit. The guy thinks he's not going to get the money, and he's like, well, I told you the truth anyways. He he was confessing to have told the truth without anything on the line because the guy just assumes he's not getting the money right Right. like he's like okay whatever i told you this so you can do whatever you want and then that's when jim's like all right now i believe you so here's your money
1: the maze gallery is a very Uh tv set gallery with it's a bunch of random paintings on easels like sitting around so this guy i was like oh i totally know this guy he's played by bruce kirby who was Sergeant Kramer on Columbo? Ah, a, along with some minor roles. Uh,
0: I recognized his suit jacket from all of the D&D games I played because <laughs> he's wearing graph paper.
1: <laughs> he's also in two more Rockford Files episodes, so hopefully that that coat will come along with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so here we get to kind of—I mean, this is essentially the reveal uh, in this. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the reveal before the reveal. This whole construction is kind of interesting. I Maybe mean, we'll talk about that uh, later, but so Rockford, of course, wants to know why he's trying to run him out of town, shows him the picture. The guy says that he doesn't know who that is. And then the lever that Jim uses to get to this guy is that he hired guys to impersonate sheriff deputies. Yeah. And as we've already established that this sheriff is such a jerk. <laughs> Jim's like, well, I can call the sheriff and tell him that you did that, yeah. and that gets Lumet to be like, okay, fine. Yeah. So that threat. So again, he's not the bad guy. The sheriff is not actually involved in this, but yes. the fact that he's such a bull is very relevant to the resolution of the story. Um, we have a bit of business where uh, LeMay sits behind a desk, and then. Someone like opens a drawer and there's a gun in it and Jim gets it before he can. So we end up with Jim with a gun and LeMay behind the desk, knowing that there's this threat of the sheriff uh, in the air.
0: No. I don't know about you. I I just want to go down the waves of destiny that stand before him in this very moment. Because we have established enough about Jim, the sheriff, and guns Mm -hmm. that I thought this was going to be a thing. I thought this is where the sheriff shows up. Mm-hmm. Jim has his gun. And so the sheriff is like, you told me that sitting in coffee, I'm taking <laughs> you in. It added more weight to the scene than just having a gun would I feel. But uh, that may have just been me like reaching for a motif here, reaching yeah. for like a parallel. That's...
1: I mean, I think it's one of those things that upon multiple viewings, you're like, Oh, that's an interesting little bit. Um, It might not be conscious. It might just be what they yeah. needed for the scene just to give Jim a little bit more of a, Threatening posture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a nice, as you say, motif kind of syncing up, or it could be a potential yeah. motif syncing up. So LeMay asks what he wants. Jim offers him $2,000 to tell him where this guy Nelson is, but he continues to say that he doesn't know who that is. And that the reason he hired guys to run him out of town is because Nancy Fraser is an old friend. They almost yeah. got married once. She told him that Jim was harassing her and following her around and she didn't feel safe. So he hired these guys to run him out. We end with a, again, a little callback to all the statistics talk from yeah. earlier. Jim's like, oh, you think that was, Yeah. did yeah. you think that was really going to work? And uh, LeMay says, it would have worked on 99 out of 100 guys.
0: Yeah. I just want to emphasize that LeMay here uh, might be a little shady, might be a little corrupt. I mean, he runs an art gallery, I'm assuming. He's not the best person in the world.
1: (laughs) No offense to our art gallery listeners. We're sure you're good. (laughs) You're good ones. But this 99 out of 100
0: men that would have worked on would imply...
1: That he's done this before.
0: Yeah, right? And I don't think he has. At this point, this is starting to feel a bit like these are a bunch of people playing at being right mafia or mobsters or
1: whatever. Playing at these kind of outside the law yeah. kind of shenanigans.
0: We'll get a little bit of that in dialogue in a little bit here. In like just moments. I can tell from my notes.
1: <laughs> so here's where I feel like we go into our, our finale. Yeah. Our act four, if you will. Um, because now we kind of know why things happened.
0: It's almost come together. Yeah, We have all the pieces, we just haven't
1: arranged them yet. It's not a hard transition, like kind of yeah. scene to scene. It's more through the, through this next little scene with Marilyn. Yeah. Because we cut to Jim, she's kind of like treating his cut and like kind of putting yeah. his band-aid on and stuff. He talks out loud to her so that yeah. we know what he's thinking. Or he's saying that this doesn't make sense. And he has kind of a sudden realization. Yeah. He must have lied because he's putting all these pieces together, as you say. Why would Nancy come here if Nelson wasn't here, first of all? Right. And then she just happens to run into an old boyfriend? That doesn't make any sense. But it all does make sense if Nelson is here and she also knows that LeMay is here and that he's someone that they can pay or whatever, to do do what they what they want to happen, they have
0: like a support network. I put this in my notes as plot holes as evidence, uh, <laughs> because the stuff that Jim is talking about is exactly the kind of stuff where, in a lesser show, you'd be like afterwards, go, wait a minute, hmm. that's a big coincidence right there. Yeah, but I feel like here it's great because it, yeah. That is a big coincidence. And we don't like, need to
1: know exactly the nuts and bolts. We just have Jim saying, oh, he must have lied. So something happened.
0: Yeah, there's something very suspicious about this plot as it's unfolding. So I don't trust it. It's time to find out the truth.
1: Um. So he shows Marilyn the photo again, because now it's like he has to be here. Yeah. And we get kind of the the most... I don't know, not unrealistic, but kind of the most in order to make this narrative work moment where she looks at it again and then is like, wait a second, and starts drawing a beard on it. And when (laughs) she draws a beard on it, she's like, oh, I recognize him. This is a, this is a painter in town. Uh, (laughs) okay, sure.
0: That's why you start off with the beard. And then shave it when you go into right, it. Right, <laughs> because you can't erase
1: beards out of photos. Yeah, really. that's been my plot all along. But she does recognize him now that he has a beard drawn onto his photo. Though, I guess up to this point, people are invested in not telling Jim things. So they can just, like, glance yeah. at the photo and they already know they're going to tell him no. Yeah. And she's probably the only one who's really looked at it. And she's kind yeah. of an airhead a little bit, so...
0: Yeah, or, like, she only saw him, like a few times or whatever, yeah. right? Like
1: it kind of makes sense. It's just it was the only thing that stuck out to me as a kind of like eh, yeah. That's the thing that this whole reveal kind of hinges on. Yeah. But it's fine. So he's a painter in town. He's apparently a primitive. Yes. He's not a classically trained painter, but his work is fresh and and exciting uh because of its uh roughness. And so his paintings are selling for up to $2,000 a picture. And also LeMay does represent him. So that connection is made. Jim has a, uh, this is good art appreciation line of people are willing to pay him two grand a picture just because he never learned how to paint.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's a very rocky line.
1: Yes. Well, which I think again is kind of setting up, our last scene with rocky which is it's all there for a reason um we go to jim rolling up to a cabin in the woods uh he's looking pretty rough i noted he has the band-aid on his eye Mm -hmm. and he still has a big bruise on his cheek and everything we finally get the appearance of steve nelson as he pops around the corner of the cabin with a very antique looking rifle rockford even asks him you ever shoot that thing before and he goes "Uh uh-uh it came with the house
0: This is the tie-in with the 99 men out of 100. This is the the moment of, like, none of you are these criminals. Right. As the scene plays out, there's more of this, too. But it's, like, nobody involved in this situation understands what this situation's about, except for Rockford. Right. He's the only one who has experience in this.
1: Right. Yeah. And knows how these things kind of should go. Yeah. But he's doing with a bunch of amateurs essentially. Yes. So, uh sure enough, Nancy is there as well, uh with more luggage. Looks like they were getting ready to split again cuz, you know, he's breathing down their necks. And we have this It's not tense. There's not a lot of tension in terms of, oh my god, what's going to happen? But it is there is some uh, tension here because of the contrast between Jim being very calm and level-headed, and yeah. the two of them clearly being agitated and kind of doing what they seem to like see from movies and TV. Right? Yeah. They have a uh, like uh, uh, Nelson starts tying him to a rocking chair with some rope <laughs> while Nancy is pointing the gun at both of them, <laughs> and Jim's like, "You know, if she shoots that, she's gonna yeah. she's gonna <laughs> hit both of us." He has
0: this great line. I don't know if she says like, "Why'd you come here?" or something like that, but his his response to is you should have paid me for services rendered yeah this is on you uh,
1: but he has an idea that'll help everyone he'll be the go between yeah he already told the insurance company that he knows that Nelson's still alive. So now they're going to be after him, regardless of what happens to Jim. But he can be the go-between, return the money to the insurance company for in exchange for them not prosecuting them and letting them go free. He's like, you don't need the money. You're making all this money from your paintings. This yeah. is a win-win for everyone. And that's when uh, Nelson just stuffs a gag in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's gorgeous and then they cut right
1: yeah and then it cuts directly to uh back to moss uh yeah refusing more advance money <laughs> yes <laughs> so we just go to jim has gone back to LA. gone back to moss all he needs is another 500 hundred dollar advance and he's seen nelson alive he can track him down and get all their money back
0: <laughs> there's something i absolutely find delightful about that cut they're tying him up. They throw a gag in his mouth. They have a gun on him. And then everybody involved in this episode is like, we don't even know the rest. Right.
1: <laughs> we just know that Rockford gets back to L.A. Yeah. <laughs> with nothing. With nothing. Yeah. And uh, Moss, uh, he's trying to bargain with Moss still. And then Moss says that the company is no longer interested in this. And then there's a dawning awareness in Jim's eyes. He goes, yeah. oh, I know what happened. He took my advice. He made a deal on his own. And now I'm out my <laughs> 5%. <laughs> Plus, he says, two hundred dollars of his own money.
0: Yes. Now it does sound like they're going to honor the five hundred of the contract.
1: He already got paid the five hundred advance. Yeah.
0: So he's up three hundred minus the expenses for the European trip, probably the expenses for what he's just done, and the eleven cents <laughs> to get in the bathroom.
1: And that's the end of it. Uh, Moss is like, "We're not interested." Yep. Nelson cut this deal. You're out. And I'm sitting here going, okay, so in that, in, in this recommendation, it was specified yes. that Jing gets paid. And I don't remember what happens. Where do? We, how do we get there?
0: I, I just need to comment on Rockford leaving the room. Because he leaves the room, he turns back to Moss, and he says, do you know what you are? Yeah, you know, don't you?
1: <laughs> it's, it's the most, uh, like a cat, like a goddamn yeah. cat. Line yes. of <laughs> that Jim Rockford has ever delivered. Yes, <laughs> it made me think of you. Um, but yeah, so so we go into our epilogue, which I, I I consider you know Act Five,
0: the denouement,
1: the denouement. We are transitioning to a, to the last part of the story, which is our last scene of the episode, uh, where uh, Rocky is. Cooking on the grill outside of the trailer uh, as Jim pulls up. Jim's exhausted. He's angry. Rocky caught a free dinner.
0: Yes, free fish.
1: Yeah. What do you mean you're not hungry? This would cost you a dollar sixty a pound at the supermarket. Frozen. <laughs> he's uh, he's beat up. He's not hungry. He's not thirsty. Yeah. Uh, when are you going to get smart and quit? One of Rocky's eternal themes of you know when is Jim just going to get a get a real job? Or at least a non-dangerous job. Yeah. But he has the great response here. When you make your first million. Yes. (laughs) In addition to uh, this fish, uh, someone also dropped off some junk for Jim. Mm -hmm. He didn't know where he wanted it, so he put it in the back of of his truck. They go over to look. Jim doesn't know what he's talking about. And it turns out that there are ten paintings that have been delivered to him. He opens one up, and of course, (laughs) it's a Steve Nelson original. And uh, so he unwraps it, and he starts smiling. And Rocky does not understand. What does he think you're going to do with all this junk, with all these bad paintings? (laughs) Jim's like, oh, come on. He's a primitive. What's a primitive? (laughs) A primitive is someone who can paint nonsense like this and turn around and sell it for $2,000 a piece.
0: (laughs) Ah, yes. So we're looking at potentially $20,000 of painting here, which in today's money would be close to $100,000.
1: Which I believe is the 5% of the $400,000 return, right?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So that's what he would have made from the insurance company. Yeah. And so Jim sorts through his $20,000 worth of paintings as uh, Rocky says, well, he sure does have a good eye for color, I guess. <laughs> Something <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> yeah. And we end with a freeze frame on a big James Garner smile.
0: Ah, uh, lovely. Absolutely lovely. Yeah, so he's up 20000 300 minus expenses. Like, he's not... Yeah. Probably not a whole lot of that 300 is left after the European trip and all that, but still.
1: And also, he uh, there's a question mark of how much he'd actually get, right? Cause yeah. Because he's not selling through a gallery direct from the artist and yeah. that kind of stuff. That dollar amount isn't necessarily what he's going to, like make off of these paintings
0: it's an imaginary amount of money right
1: there but it's something
0: even at half as much right it is a nice nice chunk of change there
1: yeah so uh yeah super super tight episode um yeah. i think like i was saying i really like how everything sets up something that comes later like is like the, the early interactions between jim and moss yeah we see that moss will do anything he can not to spend money and not to give jim yes. anything <laughs> so at the end when he's like basically like yeah we got our money back from the guy. Like we don't care if he goes to jail. That makes sense. Makes sense that Jim got cut out of it, all that stuff. Really the big loser in all of this, when you think about it, is Ginny Nelson. Yes. Cause like, does that mean that they got her two hundred thousand dollars too? Probably. And now she's she's cut off in Europe and her yeah. Husband is now going out with this uh this lover in California. But that's not our problem. No.
0: So yeah, a big thank you to Diago for this recommendation. This mm-hmm. is uh this was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, no, it was good. And uh it was kind of nice doing the season one episode was, you know, it, it kind of felt like going back to the basics, to the basics. Yeah. Yeah. I have,
0: I have, I have a theory about that, Uh which we might get into in the second half.
1: Cool. Well, then perhaps we'll talk about that along with other narrative elements that we find uh, useful in our second half. Shall we take our break and then get right into it? Yeah. All right. We hope you enjoyed that discussion of uh, another wonderful episode of the Rockford Files. Here are a couple ways to support us that will keep us bringing this podcast to you, our fellow Rockford Files fans. First, you can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever else you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. And, of course, both of us have other projects. Epi, what do you have going on right now?
0: As always, I'm working on the next issue of Worlds Without Master. Uh, You can go to www.worldswithoutmaster.com or just patreon.com slash epidiah. Or you can go to digathousandholes.com where I talk about my other projects, including non-sword and sorcery games and fiction. How about you, Nathan? What are you working on?
1: For the year of 2018, I am doing a monthly zine project called Zine 2018. Each monthly issue is a collection of essays, art, photography, and a game, and each one organized around a central theme based on the month. So you can see more about that at ndpdesign.com slash zine2018. And it is available through my Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. Uh, In addition, you can check out all of my games at ndpdesign.com, including the Worldwide Wrestling role-playing game and the forthcoming Trouble for Hire, which may be interesting to some of our listeners. So that's it for now. Thank you again for listening. We very much appreciate your support. And now back to the show.
0: Welcome back to 200 a Day. Uh, we just got done talking about The Big Ripoff, a uh, Twitter-recommended episode. And this is the second half of our podcast, where if you've not been listening all these 40-some podcasts before now, we <laughs> talk a little bit about the narrative lessons, the tips and tricks that we pick up watching the, this episode of the Rockford Files that we can bring to the games that we play or the uh, what we're writing or... However, you enjoy indulging in narrative.
1: So, I think I have one kind of meta thing to talk about before we get into this specific stuff from this episode. When I kind of threw out this idea of talking about the episode through a series of acts. Yeah. That's something that I see come up as a screenwriting thing, specifically, Mm -hmm. like the five acts. Um, And then you you can, you know, you can divide stories into any number of acts, three-act structure, five-act structure, whatever. I prefer 700. (laughs) But uh, what I kind of wanted, and this one happened to break down into what I felt was was essentially five acts, four of plot, and then like an epilogue, or kind of a denouement, as you say. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm kind of interested in looking at these episodes going forward and not trying to fit them into five acts, but kind of see whether and when they break into different numbers of acts. Because I feel like different episodes might break down a little differently.
0: Looking for that sort of larger structure... In how uh, a whole piece is put together, because we've been doing, for the most part, we've been doing like bits and pieces of things, as we've talked about it. We're like, oh, this part here plays into that, or maybe we'll talk about an overarching theme or something like that. But like looking at structure is is helpful. Uh, uh, well, I don't need to tell you this. Okay. You're also a game designer, and you know that like providing structure for people helps the creative process. Right. If you know that there's this scaffolding to fill in, or if you know, okay, at this point now things should escalate, or at this point we should be about wrapping it up. That's helpful because it focuses you and, It also gets you thinking about things that you may not have been thinking about at that time. Uh, And I think it's neat, yeah.
1: And I think this this episode in particular has a nice rhythm where each of those breaks is where the stakes change. Yeah. And I don't know if I feel that way because that's what I look for or if that's kind of the intention, but I think that's a natural way to structure a piece of fiction. Yeah. There's like a revelation of some kind. There's uh, someone new comes into the picture or someone has a new motivation. And suddenly the, yeah, the, the stakes for our protagonists are now different going forward than we had understood them up to that point. Yeah. So I'm not too interested in kind of being like, here's the rising action. Here's the, you know, right. like that. I'm more interested in like, what, what are those transition points and how are they, how do they change the story?
0: And how are they delineated too, which I think is an interesting thing. The change between um, Jim, uh, he's at the uh, insurance company's office. Mm-hmm. Then he's off doing motels like looking at motels like it's a change in location change in how they're presenting the information it's dialogue in the first one and it's a montage in the second one and uh it feels very clean and like We went from here to here really hits home when they throw the gag in his mouth and then he's back at the insurance office. Wait, was that what we were saying was one of
1: the changes? So,
0: I mean, Oh, let's get in it. Let's do this.
1: So I kind of thought of that as the end of that act. And then like act five, right. That final scene where we get the delivery of the paintings. Um, Because to me, that kind of wrapped up the story, right? Like there's no more plot after the end of that last scene with Moss.
0: Yeah. There's nothing else to be done. Although you could say that that last scene with Moss is the setup to the joke in the Damien Moss. Oh, that's true. He found them, and he told them what they could do. And then all we find out is that they did what he told them to
1: do. Well, I mean, I think there's an interesting thing in terms of looking at it as like, do you want to use some kind of formalism in your transitions? Because those are kind of like a formal, like, sharp cut, go from one location to another location uh, kind of thing where you can think of, okay, every time I transition and and act, I'm going to do that versus one that's maybe a little softer which i think the the scene kind of going from three to four uh where where jim's talking to Marilyn and talk and talking out the like wait he lied to me that whole scene is kind of the transition from jim getting beat up and finding out why and who's involved to making conclusions and finding george which was the whole point uh so there's not really as Even though there's a cut between those two scenes, between LeMay's office and and Marilyn's house or wherever they are, that's not necessarily the transition. Yeah. It's kind of the throughout the scene it transitions. So this episode uses both of those, right? It uses these hard cuts, one to the other, that are probably along with commercial breaks, um, and then some that are more of the scene length gradual transition. Um, yeah, so I guess that's just stuff I want to—I'll I'll be trying to keep in mind as we go forward with other episodes, and we can see how they break down. But uh, yeah. you had some stuff about this episode in particular.
0: So I have, uh, in addition to my half-assed tire theory, I have a, a, a bigger theory about this episode. It might be a maverick plot.
1: So fun fact. Oh. Uh, according to 30 Years of the Rockford Files.
0: Yeah. Have I hit on something?
1: You're close. Apparently, it's a retooled version of a story that uh, Huggins developed as a show called The Outsider that he did. Ah. Uh, and that was titled The $20,000 Carrot.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: I'm unclear. I'd have to look up The Outsider. I think it's like a police show, but there's private eyes in it, or there's a private eye that's part of the police force or something. Right. That's apparently from 1968, was that original script.
0: I can feel it. Like I, It's not new to us here on 200 a Day to see, like, what was the name of the one that was the...
1: Oh, uh, uh,
0: Sleight of hand. hand. Yes. So Sleight of Hand, you know, being based on a novel that has nothing to do with Jim... Uh, and this is not unusual to writing in general, like specifically genre writing. I think this happens a lot where like in the pulps, where you would write a story for one genre and try and sell it to a magazine. And if it didn't buy it, then you, you know, took the swords out and gave them guns and then sold it as a Western. Right. So this one, it feels a lot like uh, a Maverick episode to me because, um, you know, strolling into town is one thing. Maverick moved from town to town. Uh, Rockford doesn't. Rockford has a base of operations. Uh, there's the sheriff in town and the sheriff is a a weapon to be wielded. Uh, but also just like a a force of nature in the town. And you don't really think about the sheriff as being a force of nature in a town, aside from like, Oh, I'll call the cops. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know the name of my town sheriff. Uh, and I live in a pretty small town. Uh, Whereas, like, she's like, "Oh yeah, everyone knows him," and that's a Western kind of thing, you know. Uh, the bits with the guns uh, are a little interesting too. Well, anyways, the the point I'm making here is that it's interesting because it feels like a neat uh, reskinning of uh, what was written for something else, mm-hmm. right? And it, it turns out that I was right.
1: So, The Outsider uh, was a show that started in 1968. Uh, that was a PI show. It's kind of almost a proto-Rockford setup. The star is Darren McGavin, who I'm not familiar with. So the summary for the show, David Ross is an orphaned ex-con loner making a living as, as a private investigator in Los Angeles to tackle his financial problems and other people's problems as well. So there's only one season of this show.
0: Darren McGavin is uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker, which is a show. I remember watching some when I was a kid, but I'd really love to check it out again as an adult.
1: I watched a couple episodes and thought that it was not very good, so I haven't watched a lot
0: of it. (laughs) It's entirely possible.
1: Uh, but yeah, so the $20,000 carrot was an episode in 68. In and the synopsis of that here is Ross takes an assignment to investigate the death of a beautiful young girl's boyfriend. His investigation reveals that no, not only is he not dead, but he staged a huge insurance scam. He makes a deal with the insurance company to bring back the crook and the money, but it turns out to be more difficult than he thought. So,
0: yeah, retooled, retooled script. I think those things are, not only do I like them, but like, I have a fascination with them. All right, so there's seven samurai. I feel like I've talked about this on, on our on our show.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this generally, but, you know, go into it again.
0: Because Seven Samurai is a wonderful movie. And then Magnificent Seven uh, is a Western remake of that. Uh, and then Three Amigos is a comedic remake of that. Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars is a sci-fi remake of that. That includes, uh, oh, I can't think of the, the actor's name, but uh, an actor who was in Magnificent Seven. Uh, But it's, you know, it's the same plot over and over again, but you just throw it in a different uh, context. There's nothing lost there. In fact, there's things that are gained because you get to see Mm -hmm. the contrast between the genres or settings or whatever. And plot isn't the only thing that drives a story, right? Like there's other bits to the story that's interesting. Or or, uh, the same thing where you have Yojimbo uh, and then you have uh, Fistful of Dollars. Like You could do a Rockford episode based on Fistful of right. Dollars, although that would have been a little too close in time period where people would be like, oh, you're just ripping off Fistful huh. of Dollars. But you could do it, and it would be really interesting to see Rockford in that role as opposed to Clint Eastwood or Mifune uh, from the Yojimbo. I really like those sorts of retoolings of right. of older stories and
1: Whatnot. In this case, I imagine that I imagine that this Rockford Files episode is probably a better version than the original episode. Yeah, <laughs> not to cast aspersions on that show, but it only ran for a season, and yeah. uh, Huggins has had a chance to retool the script to develop it. Yeah, this is probably less of a. Let's reimagine this very interesting story and more of a, all right, that was draft one. Now here's like a new draft.
0: Yeah. Uh, And that's fun.
1: Yeah. And I think it it bears out. I mean, it's like, like I was saying in the first app, uh, it's super tight. Everything sets up something that happens later or creates justification for something that happens later, even without it being like a specific touch point. Like Jim never says, oh, good thing I talked to the sheriff so that I knew he was a jerk. Right. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's shown to us in the scene so that when he uses it as leverage later, it makes sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't have specific tricks or tips here, but I do think that maybe just as a practice it's fun to, to do that. And, I mean, okay, I take it back. I've got some tips and tricks <laughs> here. <laughs> so the first one is um, as a writing exercise, It's I'm not inventing anything new here, but people will redo old stories. Like, you can take an old fairy tale or myth or whatever and mm. rewrite it and then People do that all the time. And, uh, it's an interesting process to sit there and be like, okay, what if instead of, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but, uh, Snow White is a PI in mm-hmm. the early eighties in LA. Um, but the other thing is, thinking about it as a, as a role-playing game, something to bring to your role-playing game table, like having those structures uh, doesn't ruin anything. Like If you're going to run a game and you're like, I want to use the framework from this Rockford Files episode as the plot, even if everyone has seen it.
1: Right. Yeah, the, the, the change in medium there really yeah. means that you can rip anything off you want for a role-playing game. Yeah, exactly. Like, not only is the context different enough that people probably won't notice necessarily, unless your goal is to be. Like, all right, here's all the references, which is fine. But also, the act of play will change the outcomes. Yeah. So you can, you know, take this arrangement of characters and the same premise, and then just see what, see where it goes with people who aren't Rockford trying to figure out how do I get money out of this situation now that I'm being stiff by my client. You just go from there.
0: And so this almost segues into my other point, which isn't a big point, but I had a revelation. Hear me out on this.
1: I'm I'm ready. I'm listening.
0: We may be losing those parts of our audience that don't play role-playing games. I, I apologize to you profusely, but I also assume you turn us off after this first half. <laughs> <laughs> Rockford Files. Not all of them, but a Rockford Files game mm-hmm. where it's fiasco, mm-hmm. but Rockford is in it, and he's the only one who's the voice of reason. Right, I feel like this episode in particular, but there's a lot of episodes like that, are about people who don't know what they're getting into. The goons don't know who they're dealing with. They're just hired by a local art dealer who doesn't understand what's going on. Right, you've got uh, a greedy insurance guy who really isn't paying attention and like has it handed to him on a platter. You have. Uh, this insurance scam and faked death that uh, is about to fall apart, and the only one who actually is a, almost a calming influence on everyone is Rockford, right? Like even though he gets the sh- kicked out of him, and he does beat up that one uh, the, the mechanic who pretends to be a mobster <laughs> who pretends to be a cop, right? Still, everyone comes out of it a little better off than what their destinies were going to be if Rockford wasn't involved. Mm -hmm. That's all. I just had that, like, revelation there.
1: No, I think that's a fun way to think about it. We've talked about the fiasco comparison, I think specifically when we were talking about uh, the Queen of Peru, because that's like a Mm -hmm. very fiasco-y one. Uh, But there's... There's something about that that concept of a bunch of people who aren't professional criminals, each following their own set of motivations and it being a car crash. Yeah. That is very early season Rockford Files to me. Yeah. And I think later on they get to be... Sometimes more polished, you get more of the mob and stuff. Especially once David Chase comes in, we get a lot of mob stuff because that's kind of his thing. Yeah. Or a lot of people who are just more like, like white collar criminals and stuff like that. Uh, I think that might be part of the vibe of this one for me, feeling like going back to like yeah, basics yeah. a little bit. Um, even though it is not an original Rockford file script, it's this retooled one. Each, each reveal in this mystery shows us how there's no plot. Not, I mean, there's a, plot of the story but how there's no uh conspiracy there's no big bad waiting in the wings and that's fun because we get to we get to see rockford figure out how to get to the next place he we get to see rockford be the smart pi and do the investigation and put clues together and be like oh there isn't some big conspiracy here
0: nobody's name ends in (laughs) et
1: Right, there are no ets <laughs> in this one. So that's kind of one thing I just wanted to bring up because I feel like at least in our recent recordings, uh not again, not quite sure when this will come out, but we haven't talked about too many episodes recently that are this kind of mystery where yeah. we're with Rockford and we are watching him peel away the layers of what's going on.
0: Yeah, we get we have no uh dramatic irony. There's no information we have that he doesn't have.
1: And so he and he's kind of a little bit ahead of us, right? He He's kind of putting some clues together and then telling us what he's just figured out. Especially, I think, the part where he's like, he lied to me, right? (laughs) Like, if we're paying attention, like you were saying, that might be like a refrigerator moment of like, wait a second. But when he says that, I'm sitting there going like, okay, he figured that out before I thought that it was weird. Because it seemed like a plausible thing at the time. Uh, and it's soon enough in time. It's just a, a couple seconds later in, in just watching the episode real-time elapse that you don't have time to think about it and be like, oh. You're too busy taking notes for your podcast. Exactly. But yeah, it's an interesting thing, and it's like uh, looking at the mystery s- structure. It's not complicated, but there's enough that it feels like it really moves along with each revelation. What What is the job at all? And then we find out what the job is, and then we see Jim figure out Okay, how do I get money out of this? Then he does the investigation. Then he runs into Marilyn. Marilyn's an interesting character here because she's not part of the mystery.
0: No. Well, she's a local, so that, that's helpful. She kind um, of
1: gives Rockford a reason to be fit to physically go from place to place because he needs to be in certain places for like plot stuff to happen, right? Like He right. needs to be somewhere where the goons can intimidate him, um, that kind of stuff.
0: But she has the key information.
1: Right. Yeah, because she's the one who recognizes the picture, even though she has to draw a beard on it.
0: So, right. So there's stuff that Rockford needs to know that she knows.
1: Every time something happens to Rockford, it teaches him, it shows him that there's something new going on, right? Maybe that's the angle to to looking at how this is structured, because first he learns that uh, Nancy is not going to pay him. And then he learns that she's leaving, so he knows there's something there. And then he learns that he can't find Nelson, and then that he's getting intimidated, you know, threatened to leave the town, so he knows that there's something there. Uh, and then when he gets beat up, she gives him the information of who that guy actually is, so he can go find out who hired him, so that he can go find out why this guy's trying to get him out of town, which leads him back to Nancy, which leads him back to the to the revelation that, that, was, that he must be lying, which leads to the beard drawing which leads to discovering the painter but we have a couple they're not even red herrings but just kind of complications right like right that keep things interesting for us like what's up with the sheriff is he going to be a problem
0: one of the purposes to the whole sheriff deal is to keep Rockford from being able to rely on local authorities
1: right in the yeah time. it solves the why don't you just go to the cops problem
0: but then it also presents a, a nice red herring with these goons, right? Like they say, "Oh, I'm, we're from the sheriff." Yeah, it's real. What the f-, right? Not that they chose to make these things, but at that point in the story, when when they come into the bathroom and they tell him to to take the bus ride, and they're with the sheriff, you're like, "Why does the sheriff right want to protect?" Yeah, and it, again, it's the it's the um, it's the fridge moment, right? Like it's a thing that it's like this doesn't make any sense. But it's happening, so we'll wa- let it happen, and then later Rockford's like, "Wait, this doesn't make any
1: sense." <laughs> we have a, a little tell for that because he calls the sheriff's office yeah. like immediately afterwards, and it's like, "Okay, he's checking up to see if they are actually sheriff or not." But that's something I realized on the second watching, like that's why he's calling the sheriff then. Yeah, it's less of a fridge moment and more of a potential fork in the road, right? Right. The story could be that the uh, the sheriff is getting paid by Nelson to protect him and he's a crook and he just wants to get a kickbacks right
0: it could be this whole town is made up of people who have faked their deaths <laughs> right and are paying the sheriff off <laughs>
1: right so it could be about the sheriff that's the question we're presented with mid-episode right. is like oh is this the bad guy is this who Rockford's going to have to deal with and it turns out that it's not and that's kind of a again that's a that's a question that's answered that moves everything along it doesn't feel plotting, but it feels like it's a fun revelation that something else is going on and it wasn't the obvious thing so yeah, that's another example of the whole, Jim is never at a loss. Every time he gets stymied, it gives him information to move on. Yeah. And that's something we come back to again and again as like a really key lesson to draw out of these episodes.
0: Even, even the stymie itself is information.
1: Exactly. Uh, did you have anything else to pull out of this episode?
0: I'm wondering. I'm looking through my notes right now well okay so some of the things that i i highlighted here one is the honesty among strangers this moment between Marilyn and uh rockford in the car early on which sets the scene for this relationship i okay so i think that this relationship between the two of them is very well crafted and delightfully understated right Mm -hmm. this isn't a whirlwind romance it's A little sad, because there is a romance going on, but he's going to leave town when he's done, and that's the the end of that. But maybe that's okay. Like She's probably on board for that situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But their interactions feel very real. And one of the things that feels very real about it is just having Jim open up to her in the car on Mm -hmm. the way there. Not spill his guts, but just to be like, yeah, no, I'm running a con on you. Or not even saying that, just saying, yeah, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. You got me. I was just kidding about that. That's fine. I I just really, I dug that. And it also felt true. Like it, it, it matched some of my experiences with strangers. I've often found that strangers who don't need something from you, uh, but otherwise, have a reason to converse with you. Will be shockingly honest with mm-hmm. you <laughs> in ways that are uh, you're like, whoa, why are you telling me this? Except that you have no one else to tell,
1: right? And like, there's there's no downside to telling me because it's not like I'm going to go yeah. talk to your wife or your boss or exactly whatever. yeah.
0: I don't know any of the people in this town. I'm going to be leaving the next day, and I really really like that. And the other thing that I had highlighted is just this plot holes as evidence. I really uh, like this idea of uh, thinking about it as you're writing a mystery or something along these lines and you're not entirely sure how or where it's going to go, which is sometimes how these things get written. It's also oftentimes how they uh, happen at the table when you're playing a game Mm -hmm. uh, to just take a moment and go, okay, uh, not like what would make everything make sense, but like what are the parts here If the movie ended right now where we would go, wait a minute, why were they there or what? And and sort of figure those out and find a way to make that all fit together.
1: As long as you have some kind of, some other points to triangulate, right? It's kind of like in this case, we have all the characters and we kind of know their their motivations and we have the effect that we need to get to. So Jim's saying, he lied to me. We know who he is and we know why he lied because Jim then puts together why he lied. Yeah. So we don't really need to know what the actual truth is. Mm-hmm. Right. So it bridges that gap. Um, so, so like, why were they there? If we already know who they are and what the point of them being there was, like mm-hmm. what the outcome of their presence was, maybe we can kind of allied the specific reasons why they went from point A to point B uh, cuz we can kind of interpolate like oh well they both hate this guy and that's the guy who ended up be- who ended up getting beat up um so maybe they were trailing him or had someone right. call them or you know got lucky who cares instead of being like oh let's just move on um in yeah. play kind of maybe giving it a mention and then if you're writing or constructing a narrative using that as an opportunity to do what Jim does here and call it out in order to dismiss it, basically. That's good. That's good stuff. Helps the thing hang together without having to get super detail-oriented because sometimes too many details is, like, not interesting. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I agree.
1: Well, uh, thanks again to uh, the Twitter recommendation from Diago, who I believe is also uh, a, a uh, patron, so thank you for that. Definitely a fun episode. I don't know if... I'd be like, this is one of my absolute favorite Rockford episodes of all time. But it's really fun. It's good. If you're just rolling through Rockford's and it comes up, definitely watch it.
0: He gets paid.
1: And he gets paid. So it's a <laughs> standout episode in that yes. regard. Speaking of Jim Rockford getting paid, uh, yeah. I think we have each gotten our tenth of a primitive painting <laughs> for today.
0: Yes, I believe so.
1: So uh, we'll go and see if we can flog those on the open market. (laughs) But uh, yeah, let us know what you think about this format, I guess, uh, as we go forward with more recordings in this vein. Either way, we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.